welcome to the Account Experience Podcast. My name is Adam Durrell, and as ever, I'm your guide to the challenging but usually rewarding territory of account experience. And of course, we're focusing on customer experience in the B2B world, which if you think about it is account management plus customer experience. We call that account experience or AX. And that's what this podcast is all about. And as we kick off 2022, you know, most businesses, I think, are going to be more challenged than ever this year with a lot of macroeconomic issues that are out there. I can think of well, uncertainty over COVID, the rising price of energy. That's a huge challenge, I think, for most businesses, and of course, raw materials. Finally, labor shortages. You know, we, we hear about the great resignation. So more than ever, employee experience is going to be a big thing this year. And I think a lot of businesses are going to be thinking about how are they going to be looking after their customers better in 2022? Because if there's not a lot of money to spend on acquiring new customers, you better retain the hell out of the base you've got. So is it the year of CX? I don't know. If you think it is, let us know, but we'll certainly be telling you as we go through this. Um, a couple of notes about what's coming up in this season. Uh, in March, we will be doing the Customer Gauge uh, Account Experience Awards, which I know everyone looks forward to. That's about how we look at the excellence in in uh, account experience and you know let's find out if dhl supply chain are going to win again this year because they are a formidable competitor out there and the other thing we've been looking into uh fred reichelt's new book winning on purpose i think it's a terrific read and we've got some great feedback from that and i'm actually looking for listeners who are who've read the book and have points they'd like to discuss about that positive or negative so we'll be doing a few episodes to look at the points in his book and and discuss them um, so if you read that and you'd like to contribute, do drop us a line. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a guest. Uh, Michael Brandt is his name. He is a specialist in customer experience, but really writ large in the precision world of engineering. Many of you will know him. He is uh, Swiss-based. He's part of the um, CCXP program, and he, in fact, leads the XCO uh, program in Europe. The um, European Customer Experience Organization is a big wheel in that. Uh, amongst some of his other achievements, he's driven customer awareness to 35,000 people in a global program. I think that's some few things we can learn from him. Also driven Net Promoter from 16 to 45. Now he's operating as an independent. He's available for hire, but really one of the best people I can think of in customer journey mapping. I'm really delighted to welcome Michael Brandt with us today to the Account Experience Podcast. Michael, how are you doing? And welcome to the Account Experience Podcast. Thank you for that great introduction, Adam. I'm, I'm delighted to be here talking to you. I, it's been really great to look over your career. I think you've got a fantastic career portfolio. And, and if we just bring you back to the beginning, you were in the airline business, right? That's right. I started off, I, I was a flying fanatic. I, I got a pilot's license while I was very young and I was uh, really loved, uh, loved working on airports. And I started off my career uh, in the airline business, first uh, going through people's suitcases and security, but then I ended up as a station manager for TWA at Munich, and I, I really adored it. I mean, I, there was no nicer fix for me than walking across the tarmac at five in the morning, getting uh, filling my lungs with Jet A1 fumes. It was uh, that that was something that I was having at the time. That probably dates us a bit, but I remember TWA. I mean, my dad was in the advertising business and he was, oh, I think he was working on the TWA account in the 60s. I mean, you know. Yes, no, it, it was one of those uh, glorious uh, US carriers alongside Pan Am. Which, yeah, uh, yeah. It, and, and it was great. It was, you know, you were working for, really for a family. And 
that everybody knew each other, everybody helped each other out. It was a, it was a fantastic experience and a fantastic company to work for. Were you aware of customer experience in those days? I mean, we hear a lot about loyalty programs, but what was your experience with uh, with those programs when you were when you were with them? Well, you know, I mean, we had we had at TWO, you had the TWO Ambassadors Program, which was uh, a loyalty program. But you know, when we were talking about customer experience, you know, it it was very much you know how you how you treated passengers. And I was a station manager in Munich shortly after Lockerbie. And, and that really changed things completely because whereas before the idea was to get passengers from the check-in to the aircraft as quickly as possible and without any difficulty at all, after Lockerbie, it really became a little bit of a, a steeplechase, you know, with obstacles every, you know, you have this check, that check, passport check, security check, you know, and it became a lot more difficult. And I think that's where we started a little bit to turn the corner from, uh, you know, air travel being something that people really looked forward to, to becoming a little bit of a chore. Yeah, I think that's really and, and probably unfair on airlines to some extent, because they're only, you know, the, you're, they're keeping people entertained on, on, the, on the plane. But of course, that check-in to and gate experience is really, really beyond uh, their control. So No, it is. I mean, you know, a lot of the things they do are, are down to uh, government regulations, you know, what they have to do. And, and, and it made it a lot more difficult and for the airlines as well, you know, not just for the passengers. But because, you know, passengers became a lot more agitated, uh, you know, they were less relaxed. And, and, and I remember having to deal with uh, several customers and, uh, and it was always very difficult. Yes, I got a couple of complaint letters in my time because I've been rude. You know, what I'd actually done was say no, and people equated that with, with being rude. But yeah, it, it was a tightrope. I enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed dealing with people, and it was uh, it, it was always fascinating. I've got lots of stories to tell from uh, from, from, from that era. Maybe we can do that another time. But, but really, the focus of this podcast is all about the B2B work. And, and by right. the way, what I want to try and get you to talk about, because I think you've got this great experience in closing the loop. We're going to talk about how you close the loop later on, you know, for promoters, detractors, sure. and, and passive. But I'm going to try and make a link between what you were doing with con with consumers, really, in the air travel business, to, to you know, then you pivoted. You, you then joined an, an engineering company. Well, I've right. and, and I'd love to find out, you know, First of all, contrast that B two C work in the airline business to to B two B work for for ABB as it was. So, what are the differences in, in your mind? Well, I, I, obviously, I think you know the difference is is when you're dealing with uh, sourcing. You know, uh, if people are choosing which airline to fly, it, it's it's really quite simple. You know, you've got a route. Which airlines fly that route? Who do I want to fly with? Maybe whose loyalty program am I a member of? Um, when it comes to B2B, it's a lot more difficult because when you're purchasing big ticket items, generally it's not one person that's making a decision. It's uh, it's a committee uh, or, or you've got various different people giving their input. You've got finance, you've got uh, purchasing, uh, you have the engineering, the people are actually usable. So, so you have to try and cover a whole load of, of, of different interests and, 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 and stakeholders. But I think the one thing that it's still both boiled down to, the big common denominator, is people. And I, I think that's really important to bear in mind whether you're dealing with uh, you know, consumers in the B2C world or, or, or in the B2B world. 
ultimately it's all about people. Oh, well, I, that's interesting. I mean, you know, you talk about you, how you were responsible for a global program to take this out to 35,000 people. So, so what are some of the elements in that communicating to people to talk about the importance of customers? How, how do you start on that journey? Well, we at, at, at ABB, we started, um, we were very fortunate because we had a, a CEO, Joe Hogan, who'd come from GE Healthcare, who actually said, okay, I want an NPS program. So, so it came right from the very top uh, and, and we introduced uh, this NPS program. And the person who actually kicked it off was someone who'd had a marketing background. Um, and, and so they were able to do all the, all the explanatory brochures. But it really started off very much as a, as a okay, let's, um, let's hear what our customers have to say. But there was no, let's say, back end to it. It was, it was just the asking. Uh, and this gentleman went on to another role after a year and a half, and I took over. And with my quality background, I said, well, it's, it's all right asking people what they think. Then you have to do something with it. Because, you know, people aren't going to keep answering this question if you don't do anything. And, and then we discovered by, during the course of this program, um, that not everybody really realized what it was all about, first of all. And, and some of the feedback that we were getting from customers was also pointing us to very clear um, deficiencies in the way that we were handling customers. And so we set up a, a, a global program to try and bring this uh, our whole philosophy to to our frontline frontline staff and and we did this uh, through a, a half day workshop uh, it was in teams uh, so you'd have a group of five or six people working on a, on a workbook uh, going through exercises and, and and having group discussions and then in the afternoon there would be basically a, a, a sum summing up and and, and trying to, to hammer home the um, what had been learned during this, this program. And, and the great thing was that most people expected when they were called up to attend these things, they expected to sit in a room for a day and just watch PowerPoints. Yeah. And, and I think the whole idea that they, they were then in groups of between four and six colleagues talking amongst themselves. And we made sure that these people were from different departments. So they shared different interests and different viewpoints. People really enjoyed it. And, and, and it was rolled out in many countries. And some of the countries were still using it as an onboarding, uh, part of that onboarding process five or six years after we launched it. So that for me was, was a sign that it had been quite a success. That's a really good testimony to, to the success of that. Let me, let me just see if I can recap for that, because I think it's really crucial. The program was led from the top. So you had a CEO that said, we're going to do this. Somebody came in, by the way, I think this is fairly typical, started it up quit or went on to something, you know, bigger and better things, leaving somebody else to hold the baby. And then you have to figure out what the metrics and the, and the program were. So I think this is, this, I've actually seen this many times. Congratulations for, for gripping it and, and, and taking it. Well, um, a small correction. Joe was around for a little while, but the guy he'd nominated to launch the program, he was only there for about a year and a half and, uh, and moved on. But having a CEO who is so clearly in favor and, and clearly behind it makes a huge difference. Yeah, right. Because it just gives the whole program uh, that uh, authority and, and that credibility. Uh, and, and he, every year, ABB got the uh, top 150 managers together 
And the first year he talked about the program. And the second year, we'd noticed that there'd been a little bit of resistance here and there. And he said very clearly, he said, look, if, if you're not on board with this program, you don't belong in this company. More powerful stuff. And he made it absolutely crystal clear. So if ever there were, there were any issues with, with following up, for instance, closing the loop that we're going to talk about a little bit later, if I called a country manager and said, you have a problem with one of your units that's not been closing the loop on time within the guidelines, I need to speak to the country manager that his assistant would put me through straight away. It was like, you know, and they would get on the phone. They said, I'll deal with it. Yeah. Because the rule was that if, if anything like that went wrong, it ended up on the CEO's desk. And nobody wanted, of course, that kind of attention. So he was really so clearly behind it and made no secret of it that it really was a tremendous asset to the whole project. We know that from all of our research that the, the, the key thing to make a program working is if the CEO backs it. Absolutely. And they really have to lay down the law often to do that. But just drilling into this a little bit more, did, did, did the CEO believe it was going to be the case because, it, because of some immediate financial reward or because it was the right thing to do? I'm just curious as to how he communicated that to his uh, management team. But he said it, it was the right thing to do. He, he, you know, ABB really didn't have any standardized customer feedback program. It was divisions doing their own thing, business units doing their own thing. Um, the, the results weren't very, uh, very transparent. Um, they certainly weren't open to everyone to see. And, and Joe had come from a company that had, had used NPS and he said, no, we, we have to be a lot more transparent in what we do. We have to um, set up a program, which is very clear. And, and he said, it, it wasn't about financial reward. It was about listening to customers, showing customers that we were listening because we didn't naturally have that kind of a reputation. In some cases, customers told us very clearly, you know, you do what you want and you expect us to, to buy it, right? And so, um, as Joe said, you know, we, we have to be prepared to listen to some uncomfortable truths. Oh, yeah. And yes, we did, you know, those uncomfortable truths, indeed, they came to light and, and then it was question of doing something about it. I, I think it's a, that, that is a perfect way to pivot into it, the uncomfortable truth. Now, it sounds like you, you were able to address some of these things out front in the workshops that you were doing yeah. and you were and effectively, you were training people to, to close the loop, I'm guessing with customers. Absolutely. Because, because you know, this is something that, um, that wasn't necessarily something that we were very good at. Uh, I was also responsible for our complaint management system. And very often, you know, I, I, I'd get you know, calls from customers say, well, thank you very much. You've closed the ticket, but nobody's actually told me what's been done about it. Oh yeah. You know, or what the solution is. And, and, and so it was very clear that we, we weren't very good at closing the loop. And, and in the early years, closing the loop meant to many people going to a customer and saying, okay, uh, you gave us a two, you gave me a two in, in our survey. Um, my boss has told me I've got to come and talk to you. But the customer goes, yeah, I'm really sorry that I'm really sorry you got into trouble. Can I change it to a, can I change it to a nine? And, and, and no. <laughs> so, so it was also a question of going back to our front line and say, okay, what is closing the loop all about? Right. What, what do we actually want to do? I must say that I, I, I stole the concept of five A's from uh, Don Peppers, which was acknowledge, basically acknowledge you've got a problem. <laughs> I have to remember 
<laughs> there was it was basically oh yeah apologizing saying look I'm sorry not for what's gone wrong but I'm, I'm I'm sorry that you feel this way I'm sorry we've let you down you feel we've let you down yeah, yeah. then amplifying asking the customer to, to 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 basically tell you what the 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 problem is what they're unhappy about without jumping in and trying to defend yourself because that's some, that's a normal reaction customer yeah. says something and yeah. you want to go with and justify yourself defensiveness you know, Sorry, just defensive. defensive. It's really exactly, up. exactly. And it was, and we were training people. No, don't do that. Ask if something's not clear. Then, then really try and get the customer to get all this off their chest. And then the the fourth A was to ask. So you know, in an ideal world, what could we do to put this right? And then the fifth A was basically to act, do something with what the the, the customer has told you. And we said. These are the guidelines, you know, when you go into a customer to, 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 to close the loop, follow this, this framework and, and, and it'll serve you well. And, and so that's what, that's what we use and, and it's starting to improve. And then we were able to start telling stories of uh, some of our frontline staff who were closing the loop with customers and realized just how delighted the customer was that someone had actually read what they'd written and was prepared to come and talk to them about it. I mean, this was, this was a novelty for many customers, you know, they say, I, I mean, when we first started, I would get, you know, it would be, the survey was sent out by email and I would get some very, very rude answers. So, you know, you know, nobody's going to read this anyway, you know, why are you wasting my time? And I made a point of replying to each of those and say, look, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I can assure you at ABB, somebody's going to read your feedback. And even that, they said, 99% of the time I got an apology saying, I'm sorry for the language I used. Um, I didn't realize anybody was actually going to read it. And yes, of course I'll fill out your survey, right? So it was really a question of being consistent, absolutely making it a rule that every feedback that we got from a customer w was read, acknowledged, and, and if necessary, acted upon. And, and customers got to got to see that very quickly and, and our response rate in, increased. Um, we, we were running on a, on a response rate, which was around 27%, uh, which wasn't bad. Uh, and, uh, we had customers actually coming and asking our country organization, when's the next survey? Wow. And then we had to get customers to understand that they didn't, if they had something to say, they didn't have to wait for the survey to say it, you know? I, I, I'm just going to touch that. I there's so much to unpack here, but just sure. on that one, I mean, you know, sometimes I hear about, oh, what about customer survey fatigue? You've just answered the question that if, if you've got a well-structured and a closed-loop um, system, customers love to give feedback and do that. It's not about fatigue. It, they understand it's an ongoing part Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we started off with an annual relationship survey. Yeah. And and so, the, you know, the rhythm was, was annually and and... In some, we have one country where some of our top customers wrote to us and said, this has been a really fantastic experience because it's brought both teams together to discuss issues uh, in, in a structured way. And in a way, it's a pity that it needed the, the program to get us this far. But these were some of the benefits yeah. you know, that, that it really created opportunities for dialogue with, with many of our customers because some of the problems 
were not necessarily issues that we were in a position to resolve by ourselves. We needed uh, the customer's input, and so we'd set up joint task forces. Uh, and so it increased the bond also between between the two companies as, as some of these groups got to, got to know each other better. Oh, that's a really good story. I wonder if I can um, touch on some, perhaps some of the differences that you would see where, uh, or how you would coach your teams to tackle, say, a detractor message. So somebody's got giving you a low score. How would you coach somebody who's about to go into a closed loop session with that? Well, there was really, really a question of sticking to those five A's and telling them to really make sure that the customer got everything off their chest. Yeah. Um, really find out, you know, what are the issues? Because we said, consider the survey, the tip of the iceberg. Very often the customer, when he responds to the survey, will only give you his top of mind yes. uh, impressions. <laughs> but there's probably a lot in the background there, which he also wants to say. So, so go in there, go into your customer and really get them to uh, spill their guts, if you like, and, 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 and uh, tell you everything that's bugging them. And, and, and then that'll give us numbers. Probably overlaying on top of the five A's, you could do the five Y's to find out what was behind that and behind that. Right. It, it, yes, absolutely. You know, and 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 I think it was a it was it was a fascinating experience for a lot of the people who who had to do it. I think they all right at the beginning. I felt I think they were all fairly terrified of, of going into the customer. I think okay, I'm, it's going to be like sitting in a wind tunnel. Yes, but actually, a lot of them found out that um, being asked to actually tell us all their problems, you know, all the things that were bothering them. A lot of customers calmed down very quickly and were happy to tell us because they felt that we were actually wanted to listen to them. And, and I think that's, you know, customers who feel they're being ignored, they tend to get very irate. A customer that feels that they're being listened to, um, they become a lot more understanding also if, if the problem is complex and it's going to take a while to resolve, they tend to be very patient as long as you keep them updated. And this is another issue that, that, that is very important. Keep them updated as you try and resolve the problem. Yeah. So, you know, you might say, look, I think it's going to take us a couple of months to resolve this. Um, but then it might actually turn out to be more complex than, than you yeah. thought to begin with. And actually it wasn't going to take two months, but it was going to take six months. It was important to go back to the customer and say, look, this is what we've done, uh, but it's more complex than we thought. We're going to need more time. Yeah. And, and we found pretty much in 99% of cases, the customer would say, thanks for letting me know, that's fine. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's, it really reinforces the fact that we're humans dealing with other humans. And, yeah. and in that B2B context, sometimes it's so easy to, to, to sit behind the huge facades of the enterprises that we, we work in. You know, and then it comes down to look, we're just, just, we're just people trying to help you. Right. It, but it is that fear of getting out over, the, over it, which is really important. I love that framework. This episode of the Account Experience Podcast is sponsored by Customer Gauge, the leading B2B experience software that ties revenue to your experience data in real time to help you make better account-centric decisions that drive revenue growth. Quick question, what do you guys think is the number one reason B2B experience programs fail? Believe it or not, it's lack of C-suite buy-in. And in Customer Gauge's research with MIT, they found the quickest way to align yourselves with the C-suite is to actually align with what they care about most, which is revenue. That's why Customer Gauge is literally built from the ground up to maximize and track the revenue contribution from your experience program in real time. Companies like DHL, Anheuser-Busch, 
Heineken. Uh, yeah, we got a good amount of free beer. One Login, Iron Mountain, H&R Block, Super Office, and Sugar CRM are already using Customer Gauge to maximize their growth by tying their programs to revenue. And with over $10 billion worth of account revenue actively being managed in Customer Gauge, yeah, that's billion with a B. They're by far the leaders in B2B for this type of thing. But maybe even more interesting, we found that once you get alignment with that C-suite, the needs of these B2B practitioners or the program champions are evolving too. In such a complex account environment, it can be really tough to measure and act on feedback quickly across multiple departments, divisions, or even locations. Luckily, Customer Gauge has you covered there as well. With account-native features that easily help you not only measure the feedback for multiple stakeholders in an account, but act on that feedback in real time. Because at the end of the day, if you're not empowering your frontline staff with the right insights to address customer issues, you're going to be dealing with a churn issue. It's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. Customer Gauge helps you distribute this experience data across your entire organization, regardless of department, regardless of location, regardless of division, all in real time. No manual spreadsheets or a big team of analysts are needed. Customer Gauge's goal is to help you create an entire company committed to best serving your accounts. And that's a powerful thing. If you want to see Customer Gauge in action, go ahead and check out customergauge.com and get a demo of account experience today. You won't regret it. I'm thinking about the other net promoter roles, uh, or answers rather, you know, uh, passives and promoters. Did you have that in the program? Did you also use that as a, as a way of closing the loop? Well, certainly we, we, you know, we, we said to our account managers, certainly with, um, with the uh, promoters, you know, acknowledge at least that, you know, you've got their response, thank them for it and, you know, and, and show your appreciation uh, for the fact that they actually like doing business with us. I think, you know, that was, and, and very often that wasn't necessarily something where there was a, a specified time frame that they had to do it. And we said, look, you know, we'll, thank you very much for your response on the survey. We really appreciated it. And, and certainly, you know, if there's anything we can do in future, you have any questions, you don't have to wait till you get the survey, you know, give me a call, to, you know, to, to touch base. We found with the, with the, um, uh, passives, it was a lot more difficult because first of all, we had to get people to understand what passives were. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of our, a lot of our people at the beginning was like, well, my customer's giving me a seven. He's happy. He says he's happy. Right. And, and of course, there's a lot of cultural issues that, that, that play into this. And, and I think, you know, being based in the Netherlands, you probably know this because, you know, what, one of the things that our, our organization in the Netherlands said is that, you know, the, when it comes to, to NPS schools, the Dutch are fairly stingy. So uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what I was being told. Yeah, and, no, and that's so the, you know, that's they, the, they, the Dutch view that they always say is happy is the same thing. But on the other hand, every country has got the, oh no, that doesn't work here. No, no, exactly. Right. So, so, so for the first argument we had with people was, you know, well, just because you think your customer's happy, you still, the, still got to go in and talk to them. And of course, you know, cultural bias is something which, which is very tricky. What, one of the greatest examples I have of the differences in, in cultural bias was between Japan and China. Now, Japan is the, the, the scores are, are generally low. 
you know, the, the, the Japanese, if, if they're not, and this is one of the reasons why it's also important to, to be consistent in the method yes. that you use for the survey. If you, if you go to a Japanese customer and talk to them, they'll be very polite and give you a lovely score. If you send them an email and they're not sitting right in front of you, then they'll tell you what they think. And, 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 and they are, they're very tough. You know, scores were fairly, uh, were quite low in Japan. In China, it's the opposite. You know, they were getting fantastic scores. And of course, you know, then we had the Japanese looking at the Chinese score and say, it can't be that, the, you know, our Chinese colleagues are so much better than we are. And we said, look, don't look at other countries. What you have to look at is your year on year progress. Yes. Focus on that, right? And, and we did, a, um, we got together in, in head office in, in Zurich. Uh, I was part of a, a group. It was a very informal group of about 15 companies. Uh, B2B companies that got together annually to benchmark using using our NPS uh, results. And we had a, a professor at the University um, of Paderborn in Germany who collated all the information anonymously from the various organizations and put together an annual report. And so we were able to benchmark uh, in, in the various countries that we were uh, acted in. And we could see very clearly how the scores in Japan were so much lower than the, than the scores in China. So, so it gave us added ammunition or, yes. or added documentation for our colleagues in these countries, you know, which to say, look, you know, just focus on your year on year progress rather than looking at other countries because it's not the same thing, right? And the same thing happened in, in China and, and a couple of other countries where they say, we've got great scores. We stop now. No, no, <laughs> no that's not the way it works, right? You know, so, yeah. uh, um, but you had that unique experience because you worked in Japan for a while. Uh, so yes. did, were you did have a chance to see Japanese service culture close up? And what did you notice about it? I, I think it was the Japanese service culture at the time that I spent in Japan that actually got me sold on customer experience. Because when I actually, when I went to, when I started off in Japan, my background had been technology transfer, license agreements, and, and I was then uh, plunged into this customer facing role, uh, where I was meeting customers on, on a daily basis. Uh, and of course, also as a, as a consumer, um, the, the focus on customer satisfaction and customer service was absolutely mind boggling. I mean, it was, it, it was absolutely amazing. You know, um, you, you pulled into a gas station, two, two, two men jumped out. Uh, one of the, one of them was filling a tank and the other one was, uh, uh, you know, cleaning all the windows and an ashtray if you, if you were a smoker. And, and I remember going into a, a store, a, like a do it yourself store, home, home depot kind of thing with my wife. We, we bought a, a foot spa a couple of years earlier. It had never really worked and it was made for Japanese feet. And, you know, with my, with, with my 12 and a half, so there was no way I was going to get my feet in there anyway. It had never really worked properly, but it had been in the cupboard. It was out of warranty. Uh, but to dispose of electric uh, items in, in Japan is not that cheap. So we thought, fine, we'll take it back to the store and ask them to dispose of it. So we took it back to the store uh, that we had uh, bought it from and asked them to dispose of it. And then the, the young lady behind the counter, she didn't understand very well. So she got someone who spoke English. It was the, it was the manager. And he said, have you got the receipt? And I said, no, no. I said, it's fine. It's out of warranty. We don't want our money back. Just if you could dispose. And this to him was just not going to happen. We were bringing a product back that we were not satisfied with. 
he was not going to let us walk out of that store in that status. And he, he went to great lengths to look up what the price had been. And he refunded us the money. Wow. I mean, I, I mean, it, we, we, my wife and I, we walked out of that store and we just thought, did that just happen? You know, we couldn't believe it, but, the, but this was the attitude. And, and I found also, you know, dealing with customers there, our own customers, because obviously a B2B, how focused our sales guys and our service guys were on, on, on satisfying the customers. And, and it was, uh, it's something that really marked me. And that was then when I went back to Switzerland, when I went back to head office, that there was my real passion was customer service, quality, getting it right first time. And it, it was an unforgettable experience. But that's, uh, that's a great, a great story. I, I too have been blown away by Japanese service when I've been there. It really is, it is culturally shocking sometimes to see how amazing it is. And I think that, that's really interesting. That was your light bulb moment. Absolutely. Coming back into, to AUB, into Europe though, you, you were very focused on process and quality. You know, yes. you're, you're a Linux with black belt. You got your, you got uh, quality management very much in your background. How do you see that relates to customer experience? Well, I think processes are important because if processes are adhered to, the customers feel that everybody knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, one thing that we found annoyed our customers greatly was how processes might have differed from one unit to another. So they said, you know, doing business with ABB is like doing business with 24 different companies. You know, it's a little bit like uh, Forrest Company's box of chocolates. You never know which one you're going to get, right? And, 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 and strong processes um, preclude that from happening. Yes. You know, uh, it means, you know, when a customer makes a complaint, they know how it's going to be dealt with. It doesn't matter what kind of product it is. Um, and I think this was important because uh, ABB had various different uh, complaint mechanisms. Uh, and one day, I, and I was responsible for complaint management in, in, in ABB. And sometimes, you know, the, the CEO would come to me and say, okay, what, what are our issues? And I say, well, if we look at the, the actual group tool, this is the issue, but that doesn't take into account some 10 different business units that use their own tools or, 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 um, Excel spreadsheets in the, in the worst case. And it was a real challenge to try and get all this together. And well, we had a, a, a project to standardize this. And, and I led this and we got representatives from various divisions and business units together. And we did an as is chart. And when we finished, we just looked at it and most of the comments had four letters. I mean, it was just, it, it, it was so incredibly complex and unworkable <laughs> and different units using different KPIs to, to measure the success and, and same terms, but meaning different things. It, 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 it was anything but standardized. And, and so we really had to work very hard to try and, and, and standardize that so that everybody in the company was talking the same language. And, 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 and this was, it, it was a big challenge, a big challenge. I, I think a telling story. I don't think process is used enough in, uh, in customer experience. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that. So that's something I, I think we had another opportunity on another podcast, Michael, I'd love to drill more into that one. But I think I'd like to leave the pro uh, our, our work together today with some reflections on some of the journeys that you had. I mean, I mean, you took the net promoter from 
16 to, to, to how, what was it? 30? That's about 45. Yeah. 45. So yeah. significant number of points of, uh, I mean, could you just give the listeners a, a sense of, you know, one or two things that were the biggest contributors to, to that increase? Well, I, I think the, the, the biggest contribution was actually, actually listening to customers, not just saying that we were listening to customers, but actually doing it yeah. uh, and making sure that the whole resolution of issues was tracked. Um, as I say, we tracked the, the loot closing. Uh, we would track in our complaint management tool issues and negative issues from the survey were fed into our complaint management tool where we could track how they were being resolved, what the, what the solutions were. Uh, and training people on, on, on putting people under pressure to realize that they owed their customers an answer. Yeah. When we first started, uh, I, I had some, some issues where, you know, customers were telling me, look, you know, we're not getting answers. We're not being told what the, what the solutions are. And I went to uh, one manager and, and he said to me, I'm ashamed to go to the customers with the solutions that we're giving them. So I said, well, it's you, it's your job to kick back, you, you're, the, um, you're the customer's ambassador. If, if, if you're fed a solution for your customer, which you're ashamed to go to the customer with, you have to kick back. Yeah. And go back to me and say, look, I'm sorry, I cannot go to the customer with a solution. Yes. We told our frontline people, you are the guardians of ABB's reputation because you're, you're the, the interface between the factories, you know, where the issues are being resolved or the sales units where the issues are being resolved and the customer. And if you're fed at something which is subpar, uh, let's say for instance, a root cause analysis, and you look at it and you say, this is absolutely rubbish. Yes. You know, ABB has a reputation of being one of the world's leading engineering companies. Our, company, our customers very often, they pay a premium to buy our products. They deserve the best. They're paying for it. We cannot afford to fob them off with subpar documentation or, or our answers. They don't deserve it. And, and so it was also trying to make people conscious of the kind of quality that, that our customers deserve. As I said, the fact that we were, we were actually being um, receptive to customer comments, I yeah. think this was a change for a lot of our customers. That hadn't necessarily been something that they, they'd been used to, but also a lot of focus from the top management. We, we got all the data together. We figured out what the top three issues were. And each of these issues was then sponsored by one of the members of the C-suite. And there was a project manager and basically he was given the task of resolving these issues with the divisions and the business unit. And there was a quarterly update for that C-suite member on what was going on. And actually, sometimes there was a, actually, you were expected to go to the whole of the executive committee and make a presentation and say, this is what we're doing. So there was, there was a lot of pressure on the organization to resolve these issues. And it bore fruit. I mean, in this respect, Joe Hogan was, was right on target. And uh, he left after the program had been in place for about four years. And a lot of people say, so is NPS going to stay? And the new CEO said, absolutely. This is now, it's part of our DNA. It's, it, it's not going anywhere. And by that time it had been, uh, 
extended to transactional uh, surveys that, and also internal surveys. So, for instance, one of the first internal groups that used an NPS survey was our HR department. Oh, um, makes a connection between the style. You know, and, and, and that was perfect. Michael, I really appreciate how much you've shared uh, with your life on that program. That's a really great insight to B2B, Net Promoter, and Closing the Loop. Thank you so much. You say on your website that you're a CX Sherpa, and I think that really describes your role in this. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, you can go to my uh, website, which is www.cx-excellence.com. Uh, yeah, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Michael Brand CCXP, and I'm I'm always happy to talk to anybody about customer experience. I guess that's the animals coming in now, probably telling us that we should get out of here. Michael, thank you so much for the insights today, and thank you for sharing it for all the listeners to the Account Experience blog. I would definitely give you a ten on this. I'd be thanks a lot what you do. By the way, if you're listening and you also like what we do, do not forget to subscribe. That really helps us and also promote it to your friends. We're in the net promoter business after all. If you're not happy, let us know. Let us know what you'd like to hear about it. Until the next time on the Account Experience Podcast, thank you once again and see you soon.